Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Okay, welcome back everybody to our study of the Evercatinos. And tonight we are picking up on page 177 of the text. And if you remember, we had been following along the, with the Father's teaching on the revelation of one's thoughts to an elder, spiritual director, confessor, um, in order that we might see the origin of those thoughts. And if we are struggling with particular passions or they lead to the passions that the elder would be able to provide a healing kind, kind of balm or offer some teaching in terms of specific spiritual practices. And in this hypothesis that we're looking at now, uh, we've been uh, looking at the, the writings of the fathers on not simply entrusting this task to anyone, but rather one who has the gift of discernment and that it can be something that is harmful if we simply expose our, our thoughts indiscriminately to everyone that we meet or in a very public forum. And if you remember a little bit from last time, we've been following a disciple who's been asking one question after another uh, about the things that one would encounter in, in uh, the, the, the questioning of one's elder or the advice given, when to follow it, when to not to follow it, when is it uh, sort of advice as opposed to a command is, is what we'll be looking at here this evening. And so once again, we're on 177, the, the second paragraph from the bottom. Therefore, you are obligated beforehand to endeavor with all your strength to apply the counsel of the elder. If, however, it occurs that things do not come out as you expected, despite your diligence, know then that some change has occurred someplace, or that this circumstance has caused you pleasure, as I said earlier, or that either circumstances or the intentions of the parties concerned in the matter have changed. And that for this reason, God has changed the advice of the elders in accordance with each situation, as in the case of Hezekiah and the Ninevites. So if you remember last time, that was one of the uh, prominent uh, examples, uh, Jonah going to the Ninevites, that they actually responded uh, to Jonah's exhortation, that they did communal penance, all the people, children, as well, and animals even that they covered with sackcloth and ashes. And so the council then uh, is, is given to Jonah following that shifts. And so in some ways, I think it's a very good example that there are circumstances that uh, can bring about a change in what, what the elder offers. Uh, and I think maybe in a more practical way or what would be, uh, part of our experience is that sometimes uh, it can depend upon what is revealed to the elder you know, over time, that uh, what he's given to understand about our particular spiritual struggle, where we are in it, how we've been engaging in that spiritual battle, how we've embraced previous counsel, and whether or not we've embraced it fully, or if we've been negligent in some other way, say we have uh, exposed ourselves to things that can give rise to the passions. Uh, and similarly, I think if we've uh, have seen some growth and uh, through our embrace of that counsel, then uh, what is offered by the elder might deepen and change too. And in, this, in the sense of stretching the soul, uh, maybe calling the individual to enter more deeply into the life of prayer or penance uh, in order that uh, the spiritual life might uh, bear even greater fruit for him. Now, if the elder whom you consulted is not available in order to ask his further advice, pray to God invoking the elder's name. O oh God, do not allow me to fall into error and to be far removed from thy will and from the advice that thy servant has given me, but instruct me as to what I should do. Then do as God instructs you, believing that God spoke to you through his Holy One and that he is guiding you. You should know that the most certainly, that most certainly something has changed and that on account of this, God changed as well the advice which you were earlier given. 
And so it's a, a kind of a curious thing, but a, again, it emphasizes the bond that is supposed to exist between uh, a soul and the spiritual elder, that one would even be able to invoke uh, in one's prayer, the elder's name and asking God, help me to be faithful to the counsel that has been given or give me clarity about the counsel that is given that I might embrace it in the right spirit and or I might embrace it fully without uh, falling into a kind of laziness about it. And um, this is a powerful thing because I think it shows us again the importance of that relationship for both parties that they would be uh, praying very deeply that there would be this kind of intimate bond that it's you know not a kind of detached uh, relationship where one uh, isn't overly concerned about what is taking place in an individual's life and that the trust would be such that even in one's prayer one would invoke the elder asking asking that God would hear uh, his intercession or her intercession on our, our behalf. And so it takes us a, a little bit further, I think, than perhaps what we are given to experience in our day-to-day -day life. I think this is why there can be a, a great value in having uh, a confessor over the course of time, over many years. You know, maybe we would take a while to find one that we would feel comfortable with and who knows us, but to try to stay with them as much as is, is humanly possible uh, because they you know, do have a vested interest, even though they don't hold our particular sins in mind, you know, in the sense of remembering them or, or thinking about them. You know, I, there is a grace that is given that a consistent counsel can be given over time and a knowledge of the other that is revealed uh, in the sacrament. And so to be able to take advantage of that is a beautiful thing. I think I've mentioned here St. Philip Neri uh, had uh, penitence for 30 and upwards to 40 years. And uh, I think sometimes because priests are moved around so frequently, today that can be a very difficult thing. But if it is possible for us to, to try to seek it, seek it out in some measure. Okay. Any thoughts so far? Okay. Letter E. The brother said, tell me, my master, how many times do I need to pray in order for my mind to grasp God's instructions? And so here we go again, the relentless uh, uh, young monk, how many times do I need to pray? Uh, and so, you know, I think we often will struggle with a certain level of frustration where maybe we lack kind of clarity about the advice that is given, or we find ourselves being drawn back to a particular passion, or we're struggling to maintain the discipline in prayer. And the elder answers, when you cannot ask the elder, you must pray three times about every concern, afterwards carefully examining where your heart is inclined, paying attention even to the smallest of details, then you must do what your heart tells you. For this knowledge comes from God and is certainly revealed in the heart. So, you know, first invoking the elder's name, but to, to repeatedly ask God for a kind of clarity to come to us. And, uh, Often we struggle with kind of impatience in that regard and uh, trying to understand, you know, what is being asked for us or asked of us or the depth of the prayer uh, or the will that is necessary uh, to, to draw us forward that we would enter into it fully. And, uh, and again, this isn't quite enough for the young monk. And so he asked him, how should I pray these three times at intervals or at the same time? Sometimes the matter cannot be delayed. And so what if you're in a situation where you have to make a quick decision and you have to discern something very quickly in one's life? What do you do then? I mean, do you, you know, put somebody off or put a situation off? And what if the situation doesn't allow that? What, what does one do then? If you have time, you should pray three times for three days. If, however, there is something, some pressing need, as at the hour when the Savior was delivered up to the Romans, 
a rare instance. Take as an example Christ himself, who three times in a row left to pray, repeating the same thing three times over, though in this instance, ostensibly without being heard, since all had to occur according to divine providence. In this way, the Lord taught us not to be sorrowful when we pray and are not for the moment heard. For he knows better that, than we what is our, in our best interest. Let us not then be found far from giving thanks to God, and we shall be saved. And so, you know, discernment isn't simply this process of thinking things through and coming to a kind of clarity about them intellectually, ruminating over something over the course of time. I think that can be part of it, you know, where we would use all of our faculties and look at the circumstances that we are being faced with, as well as the counsel that we receive from a confessor or an elder. Uh, but th this question that he asked the elder, I think, shows us something about the nature of discernment itself, that it, uh, to a pure heart, that faith allows us to know, to comprehend, even where there is darkness or the experience of darkness. Uh, I've brought up John of the Cross in these groups many times before. Uh, for one reason, I like the way that he describes and defines faith. He describes it as a dark, obscure knowing, that it is a kind of comprehension, but an acknowledgement that the things of God, the, the things that are of divine origin are often not clear to the intellect or to reason. Not always, but I think often, I think when we are uh, confronted with things that involve a kind of sacrifice or seem uh, to upend our perception of things or how they should be in our own life or how we would want them to be. And so to be able to prayerfully approach God uh, as Christ did in the Garden of Gethsemane, and to do so with purity of heart and with a trust in the Father's will, to put our, uh, our need or our intention before God, to pray faithfully, and then to allow ourselves to be drawn forward uh, and allow ourselves to be docile enough to be drawn forward, uh, by, by the light that is given to us through faith. And that can be a hard thing because I think in our spiritual journeys and in our day-to-day -day struggles, we can be sort of willful in the way that we come to decisions or the way that we choose to act. And I think the, in large part, the ascetical life is to create docile minds and hearts that are responsive to God so that even in the darkness, walking in that darkness of faith, we are allowing ourselves to be guided, to be drawn forward. And uh, this requires at times enormous faith to allow God to take us by the hand and lead us along a path that is unknown to us, where there's nothing for us to take hold of that is familiar. And uh, getting back to John of the Cross, you know, I think when he talks about sort of the movement and the progression through the spiritual life, he describes those, those changes, our, our movement deeper into faith as being ligatures, as being breaks, that they're very difficult because we are being called to let go of even things that have served us well in the past in regards to discernment. Uh, ways that we've prayed, things that we've studied, things that we've read, to allow God to guide us more and more along the path of faith, and uh, where the encounter with God is growing deeper and deeper, and if we are following him and taking hold of him with faith, and it is this dark, obscure knowing, we aren't going to have those usual things that give us a sense of security or comfort about the path where he is leading us. It is sort of this pure faith and trust in his love and his guidance. And there's, it's true, it's a true knowing. And it's a knowing that comes from loving God and experiencing ourselves as being loved by him that allows us to, to walk that faith. But often we will want to go back to what is more familiar. 
that even though God is, is, is gently guiding us along a particular path, you know, something will snap into place. This is no, that's unreasonable or it's too difficult. I can't do it. Or, you know, where our faith begins to waver and we'll, you know, want to go back to embrace our own will. And this is where the fathers are telling us sometimes when our prayers don't seem to be answered, that can be what's taking place. This vacillation in our faith. And, you know, we'll often take a step forward and then sometimes two steps backwards uh, because we'll be drawn forward along that path of faith. And, you know, fear will overcome us or our attachment to security or our attachment to particular sins. And so we'll go back to praying or doing things in the way that we've done and, and choosing, as it were, our own path rather than allowing God to draw us forward. So in some sense, I mean, as we go through this, the, the young monk's questions can seem rather annoying, uh, but he's actually showing us something pretty important about discernment itself and, uh, and why purity of heart for the fathers is so important that anything that would uh, would would cloud the clarity of that vision of faith. So any kind of selfishness, self-centeredness, pride, any way that we are, you know, uh, focused upon our own appetites or passions role in our life, that vision of faith can darken, that we lose that purity of heart or, you know, it's, uh, one of our guests here tonight uh, had mentioned before the beginning of the group, the noose, the eye of the heart, the eye of the soul becomes clouded, darkened. And so we don't see with the kind of clarity that God would desire us uh, to see and uh, or to perceive, I think, as we're moving forward. Any comments or questions about what's been said here so far? So it might not be a typical way of understanding discernment as we would perhaps be more familiar with, I think in our own day and age, uh, because I think sometimes we'll, we'll th think of discernment again with what seems reasonable or what seems in accord with our own talents and abilities or, or what we, we want uh, in some way. And so, very quickly, God can be our own, become our judgment of what seems to be best, and not necessarily our listening to what uh, a confessor or a spiritual elder is telling us, or what God is saying to us in, in the depths uh, of our encounter with him in faith. Okay, any thoughts? Okay, so the brother said, if after praying, the answer is slow in coming, what should I do? If this lateness occurs because of my own culpability, that I'm not able to recognize it, how will I finally realize this? So, you know, if one faithfully enters into this, or even if there is a kind of culpability that darkens the vision, that prevents us from seeing the path forward, how are we to re respond to it? Or how are we even to see that this is what's taking place? The elder said, if you pray three times, but after the third time an answer does not come to your soul, then you should learn that the fault originates in you. And if this fault is yet not revealed to you, then you should reproach yourself and God will have mercy on you. So, you know, there are times in life, I think, where we have to humbly acknowledge that our response to God is not as full as it could be, either in terms of, you know, negligence or lukewarmness in our prayer life or uh, exposing ourselves to things that pull us away from God, and that that can delay clarity for us, and that our response to that might simply have to be 
to wait, to seek to enter more and more fully into the relationship with God, to give ourselves over as much as we can to the counsel of our elders, to, to pray as deeply as we can, but to acknowledge that it's in God's time and also in light of where we are in the spiritual life uh, when that clarity comes to us. And so, you know, we might find ourselves walking simply in that darkness of faith until the light of God pierces through that to reveal the next step forward for us. And so we might have to be patient maybe for a long time before we, we have that kind of clarity. And again, that can be difficult for us because so often we want things to be instantaneous. And we can sort of even pick that up in the young monk's questions. You know, how, well, if this doesn't work out, what do I do then? Or how do, how do I get as quickly as possible to that point of discerning those things? And sometimes it's not so much because we desire to do the will of God, but we desire to know for ourselves. We desire to have that clarity and not to have to walk along that path that is unknown or unfamiliar to us or frightening. Any thoughts or comments? So you're all in agreement with everything that's being said here. Okay. All right. So we're at the bottom of the page, 178. The brother said, when someone consults the fathers and receives various counsels from them, how many of these counsels is he obligated to carry out so as not to transgress any of them? The elder answered, certainly one has no obligation to carry out all the counsels, but only those which are given as commands. Simple godly counsel is one thing, but a command is another. In other words, counsel is an ad admonishment without compulsion, indicating to a person the straight way of life, while command is placed on him as a yoke. And it is of necessity demanded from the one who accepts this command that he carry it out. I thought it was a good distinction, you know, that often we are given spiritual counsel in the confessional or even from our spiritual director, as things that are, have been shown within the spiritual tradition and in the lives of the saints to be fruitful in the spiritual struggle, whether it's with the passions or in deepening our prayer, ways of prayer. But it doesn't really, it doesn't necessitate that we embrace every one of those counsels in detail that we're not necessarily being negligent and or disobedient in doing so, that those who are in the position of offering spiritual counsel will want to hold out that which is best from the tradition or those things that have been shown to be healing or medicinal in some way. Uh, but the, the, the distinction between that and command is a good one. You know, I think when uh, one has been working with a spiritual elder and one freely uh, asks for uh, counsel to be given and that it would be held binding. And he, he goes into detail here into what that looks like, that then one would take that on as a yoke, that we would take it on as a role that we hold binding for ourselves and we would even bring to confession, say, if we were unfaithful to it, if we did not embrace it. And the point is making, made here that uh, it's from one who accepts this command that he carry it out. So it's demanded, but it's a, of a person who really accepts it to begin with and seeks it out. And so a young monk, you know, in the spiritual life and struggling with something in particular, or especially with a weakness in will in certain disciplines, might ask the spiritual elder or confessor to uh, place upon him a specific role that he is to keep uh, in this spiritual battle, that he would place upon him as binding, that it would add extra weight to the counsel that is given uh, in order that he might, it might strengthen his will 
you know, to receive something that is not lightly given by the elder and that the elder would have the responsibility of praying for the individual to take that up and remain faithful to it. That uh, the, the person would ask for that and the elder would give it in that, in that spirit, not lightly, but really out of having discerned what the particular struggle of the individual is. And so typically this is not something that an elder would want to do uh, frequently or casually or without knowledge of the other or really without the other wanting this as a, a part of their life. Like there is a difference between spiritual direction and spiritual counsel. We might go to a particular priest or even various priests or sisters or those who we know uh, are living the spiritual life in a deep way and ask for counsel. What would you do in this circumstance? Or if you, you know, if how would you understand this particular struggle and what would you counsel that I would do? And that might be done on, uh, you know, not as a frequent basis. You know, every once in a while, or as one comes up against something in the spiritual life that is difficult, one might seek out spiritual counsel, guidance, spiritual direction that might also involve something like uh, the command that is uh, described here would be something that would be more frequent that would allow for a deeper knowledge and familiarity to grow. Uh, that the, the elder would have a greater sense of what the person is struggling with, how long they've struggled with it, what the nature of it is, what the particular passions are, the nature of the person's prayer role, how faithful they are to it. It gives the spiritual elder much more to work with and also would make, I think, him more willing then to offer the kind of counsel that would be more binding. Does that make sense? Does the distinction that the elders are making here make sense? Okay. And, you know, spiritual directors or confessors have to be careful about this because there can become, you know, there's a kind of paternalism or a clericalism that can develop, you know, this sense, you know, father, my life is a mess. Tell me what to do. And a lot of priests, you know, I think can fall into that. Okay, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what to do or, and where it's really not the best thing to do. I mean, how do you offer counsel to someone that you don't know or, or something that is very specific? Uh, and so a priest has to be in particular very careful not to step into that because it can appeal to his own self-esteem and ego as well to be put in that position to have somebody asking him for counsel or, or advice in the spiritual life, or more than that, to really place something binding upon them. And so the, the elders or you know, spiritual directors should not do this you know, in a kind of casual way or in a lighthearted way. So going on, the brother said, Father, you have told me the difference between a command and counsel according to God. Please clarify now for me then the characteristics of each one and what strength strengths each of these has. The elder answered, if you go to a spiritual father to ask him about a matter, not to receive a command, but to hear godly counsel, and the spiritual father tells you that you should do something, you are by all means obligated to follow that advice, even if during the execution of it, you experience sorrow, in which case you should not be disturbed since this occurs for your benefit. If on the other hand, you do not wish to apply simple advice given to you by spiritual father, you are not considered to be transgressing a command since you are not given what you heard in the form of a command. Nonetheless, you are overlooking your best interest, and for this reason, you should reproach yourself. For you should trust that whatever comes from the mouths of holy men is for the benefit of those who hear it. So it's, it's not as though dismissing the counsel 
of one who is your spiritual director or confessor has no weight or moral value to that. Certainly it's not binding, but it, it doesn't mean that it's, uh, that it isn't foolhardy to neglect it. You know, that to not embrace counsel, godly advice that is given, uh, we are simply perpetuating perhaps the thing that we are struggling with and have perhaps struggled with over the course of decades. And so we would still re reproach ourselves, uh, you know, for our own neglect or our unwillingness, unwillingness uh, to enact this counsel or to embrace it in, in some measure. It's still not uh, on the level of dismissing a command that has greater weight, but still there's something wrong. We have to look at ourselves and say, you know, am I humbly listening? And am I uh, receiving what is being offered to me in a spirit of gen generosity, in the spirit in which it is being given? Or am I simply asking to hear what the spiritual father or elder has to say without really the intention of, of embracing it. And even the monks in the desert faced that, that people would come to them sometimes out of a, a spirit of curiosity, that they hear that there is a, a monk that is known for his holiness or uh, his wisdom. And so that they would travel out to the desert out of a kind of curiosity to put that to the test. And uh, in, in the, uh, I remember a story about John Vianney. You know, he was a great confessor in, in France and uh, towards the end of his life, he was, you know, in the confessional for, you know, an exceptional amount of hours, you know, all day long. And uh, there were tens of thousands of people. Uh, and I, th I think even at one point it was like, over a hundred thousand people that were coming to ours, this little town in France, uh, to to see him or to go to confession because of this reputation had it was very much like a Padre Pio figure, and uh, a person, a, a woman, came to him to for confession, and he heard her confession, gave absolution and a little bit of counsel, and that was it. And she said, after coming out, you know, that's all. And, and, you know, he sort of said, well, you know, what, what, what did you expect in coming here other than that you would receive the grace of the sacrament and counsel that was based upon, you know, certainly what he knew of her or what she had confessed, that she was looking for the extraordinary and not necessarily coming there you know, really with a, a true or deep knowledge of her need or what she was struggling with or with a kind of spirit of humility of, you know, really wanting to hear something deeper. That, and so we have to be wary of that. You know, I think in our day and age, and we see even Jesus, war, you know, warn about this. This is a wicked and evil generation because it seeks for a sign. There can be this part of us that wants God to prove himself to us in one way or another. And one of those ways could be through the particular counsel of a holy elder. You know, that we want to receive some deep, insightful counsel that is going to change our life and the way that we view life. Uh, so that, you know, we immediately take this leap forward you know, out of our particular struggles, as if it's magic. And, uh, and I think that's, you know, how they were approaching Jesus, you know, they wanted to see him, you know, perform these kind of wonders, uh, you know, even with the multiplication of the loaves, you know, the part of that he, he saw was that people wanted to fill their bellies, you know, that they were some in the group were following him, you know, because of what he could give them on a, on a, even on this practical level and, um, and not because they were hungry for what he was really offering them. 
And so I think in our approach to confession, spiritual direction, to all the sacraments, to receiving Holy Communion, we really want to be aware of the state of our, our, our hearts. And you know, if there is the spirit of humility there, a longing for God and what he alone can offer and an acknowledgement of our own poverty and the need really to take hold of the grace that God has given or the counsel that is given to us and take hold of it fully. Again, not to treat it as something that is magical. Now, sometimes people do that to this day, even with the, the Holy Eucharist, will go time things. I've met people over time who will time things to get to a particular church at communion time. And so to go from church to church to receive communion as frequently as possible on a given day, uh, as if somehow receiving the Lord in the Eucharist, the going to Mass that one time is insufficient. And uh, again, it can reduce the sacrament into this kind of magical rite rather than entering into this most intimate of relationships with our God. You know, this cons consummation of love that takes place there uh, in, in the communion that we enter into. And it can reduce something like the Eucharist to, you know, a, a, we can take on this sort of consumerist mentality. You know, we're, we're, we want something uh, special, you know, uh, to make us feel, uh, you know, that we, we've been given something uh, extraordinary. And often it's the, we see it in particular on Palm Sunday, you know, how, and not, you know, I don't want to diminish, you know, people coming on that day because there is something beautiful about the liturgy. It's the beginning of Holy Week, but it is, you know, there's something interesting about sacramentals sometimes, including something like receiving ashes on Ash Wednesday, that they can take upon themselves a kind of magical kind of uh, quality. Uh, that even exceeds the, the beauty of receiving the Holy Eucharist. And so getting back to what we're reading here, and you know, we, we don't, just in the way, as, as, as we are reading the, the fathers, or as we receive counsel from a confessor or elder, that we, we don't want to approach it in a kind of consumerist way with, or out of curiosity, you know, that kind of dilettantism, you know, to, to have a kind of special knowledge or private knowledge that isn't accessible to others, you know, that we can search this, these kinds of relationships out because they provide us something on that level. And again, it might not necessarily be rooted in this deep desire for God. Any thoughts? Well, you're a very docile crowd tonight or tired. Maybe that's it, but uh, okay. So then you would reproach yourself is where we left off for simply ignoring the advice, uh, even though it's not commanded. This holds even if you ask nothing at all, but are advised by the elder on his own initiative, he being enlightened through a thought inspired by God, which is a thing that sometimes happens. For example, a certain brother was once planning in his mind to go into the city. An older spiritual father on his own initiative told him that if he were to go into the city, he would fall into fornication. The brother disobeyed, uh, the elder and went into the city where he indeed, indeed fell into fornication. If now you ask about something, wanting to receive a, a specific command from your spiritual father, then you are obligated to make a prostration before the one who gave the command that he might bless you, saying to him at the same time, my father, give me your blessing on this command and pray that I might fulfill it. So uh, even when, so we'll start with the first part of the paragraph, even when advice is given when it's not asked for, that there is a kind of value to that. 
that sometimes within the confessional or in the course of spiritual direction, uh, an, an elder might be inspired by what he hears to offer, and maybe not even fully aware himself, but inspired to offer a kind of counsel that is given, that one should listen to that with a kind of docility, with a listening heart, and uh, you know, being teachable, eminently teachable. Uh, but the command, as it's spelled out here, is very specific. That you know, one prostrates oneself. You know, makes an act of obedience in this very concrete way before the elder and asking for the blessing as well as the prayers of the elder to fulfill it. And I think it is so specific again uh, because, you know, it's not a kind of detached counsel or advice. It's something that the elder is also taking upon himself in uh, discerning whether or not this is something that is going to be truly helpful and healing to the soul in his charge, but it also places upon him the responsibility to pray on behalf of a spiritual child. And so to take upon himself part of the burden of that reality, that part of that yoke, and to carry it with his, his spiritual directee, uh, and so it's not to be given lightly and unless it's done in this specific fashion, an act of obeisance is, is made. You know, he prostrates himself before the father and asks for it specifically. So, you know, very clear and in good counsel to this young, young man that uh, you know, it's not to be lightly asked for or lightly given. And one would th think that one would only ask for such a thing as if, uh, uh, if that trust already existed and had been something that had developed over the course of time, that this is one uh, to whom you've entrusted your deepest thoughts and struggles for a longer period of time and know how they're being heard and how they're being received. And that there's a confidence in the elders uh, willingness, but also desire to pray for you. Now we often use that phrase frequently as Christians. I'll pray for you. When somebody says I'm going through a difficult time or I'm sick, you know, and it can become, you know, one of those automatic responses that Christians make. You know, it's, I'll pray for you. It's like, well, I'll, I'll have positive thoughts about you. But do we really do it in the sense of uh, setting ourselves to praying for those who are truly in need and to really pray? I mean, to immerse oneself deeply and not just to call a person quickly to mind, but to invest oneself before God as if you were praying for your own needs that you would be praying for that, that individual. And so I don't, I don't think it should be something that's lightly said. I think even in our culture, our culture is rebelling against that. And you've probably heard it in more recent times where, you know, prayers and good thoughts are not enough. You know, specific action has to be taken. Because I, I think that it's, you know, that phrase, I'll pray for you, uh, has become something that people see as shallow or hollow, and that isn't often followed up in any practical way, you know, whether it's in the practice of praying for the individual or actively seeking to help them in their specific need. You know, a person who's dying of cancer you know, to actually be attentive to them in that time, to accompany them, to enter into their sorrow with them and be willing to take it upon oneself. And often it's, you know, not something that is easy to do or that we want to do.
there are some really good priests that I see do this in the most genuine way. And you can tell that they mean it and they act upon it and their response to needs are very swift, you know, whether or not they're inconvenient. And, uh, and so it's a hard thing, I think, for us to be really conscious of what it is that we are saying to each other in the spiritual, in the spiritual life. And a priest, I think, who, you know, it's a, a terrible responsibility, I think, that is put upon the shoulders of priests and why they need to be prayed for in order that it might not be, you know, a, a superficial kind of reality. You know, that they're going through, going through the motions or actions in a pro forma kind of way. You know, whether it's, you know, uh, presiding at a wedding or a funeral, you know, are they fully invested in it? Or are they doing it simply because it has to be done as part of their work and looking forward to when it's over, you know, because it's difficult. Any thoughts? Okay. Could I just ask, um, I, I've been reading um, mm -hmm. quite a bit from the fathers in the last month or two, mm -hmm. and this word fornication comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. I just want to know, does it mean what it means today? Yeah, um, it would mean it, it's, a, it's sexual reference only. Right, yeah, that's what yeah. they would have in mind. Yeah, that's good. Sexual intercourse is what they have in mind. So not just the yeah. thought of it or something along those lines, but the actual action. Good. Thank you. Okay. Okay. So realize, brother, that the elder who gives you the command does not simply give a command, but helps you by his supplication and his prayer so that you will be able to fulfill it. If perchance you do not make a prostration before him to get his blessing, do not think the command is not to be fulfilled, for even thus it remains in force. You have but received the command inappropriately and in a servile manner. And if you are able, do not be wary of returning to make a prostration before your spiritual father and to ask his blessing. If, however, you are unable to do this, then consider yourself to have received the command with negligence on your part. So, you know, it may seem to be a, a strange bit of counsel here, but I, I think the, the prostration is this concrete bodily uh, enacting of that desire that you come before the, the spiritual elder and you make this act of obeisance, you, you bow down, you prostrate yourself entirely before the individual to ask for this specific command. So again, it's not made by whim, that it has to be something that's very conscious and that one is asking for and asking for in the most concrete way that is uh, something that is, uh, you know, could not be misinterpreted by either party, that the elder is agreeing to it and gives the command when the action is made and offers his concrete blessing to it as well and is taking upon himself the obligation to pray for the individual. And so if a person does, doesn't do it correctly, he should go back and do it, that he was negligent in the asking of it, that he was being, uh, you know, ca again, casual about something that is, uh, you know, has great weight and import and demands this kind of full response. It's an important thing, you know, because I, I, the whole premise of this hypothesis is that, you know, there can be bad spiritual counsel that is given that can cause great harm to an individual. And so how is it that one discerns, you know, the diff these differences between counsel and command, when to ask them, how to interpret them, and how to ask that which is greater? 
uh, both on the part of the elder and on, on the part of the disciple. And in our day, again, we can be so you know, free in embracing everything or anything that is being said. If it speaks to our sensibilities in our way or it evokes a certain emotion. Ren. This reminder that the elder prays for the one whom he counsels is very helpful. I'm not sure there is anything more humbling than being prayed for or fasted for, knowing that another is investing themselves so deeply on your behalf definitely spurs one on to greater dedication. The gift demands a response. Absolutely, you know, I think it again makes it ever so concrete and re relational. And I think, you know, this certainly spills over into our relationship with Christ himself, you know, that how it is that we prepare ourselves, for example, whether it's to go to confession or especially to receive Holy Communion, everything that, for example, St. Theophan taught when we were uh, reading through his letters to Anastasia, you know, that there would be this level of pre preparation and discernment about one's own spiritual life, and but discernment also about the nature of the gift that is given and what response then the, that is to evoke from us. And so to ask a spiritual elder to, to give this kind of man a command, then you know, not only lays upon him this responsibility, but upon us then to, to take hold of what is being given to us you know, by God in terms of giving us someone to guide and direct us, but also by, by the elder, as you said, that we are being given this very personal response, not just words, but again, the actions of the elder, that he's going to fast and pray for, for you specifically that you might fulfill the counsel. And to be honest, I think most of them and we'll hear this in the fathers again and again, but I think in our own spiritual life that so much of what is gained in the spiritual life often is due to the prayers of others on our behalf that we might not be consciously aware of. And I, with something like this, I think we become very conscious. And Ren says, yeah, while well, imagine that God himself in the person of Christ fasted for each one of us, spent him, himself praying for each of us. So very humbling, right? You know, praying all night long. And, you know, uh, say before, just take an example, the choosing of the apostles, you know, that part of that praying was not only discerning who to choose, but also that they might be faithful to the charge that was going to be given to them. That is, again, not a detached kind of thing. Well, okay, I'll, I'll, like picking somebody for dodgeball. I take you, I take you, I take you. You know, that there is something, you know, far more radical and personal about it. And I think that's what makes, you know, Judas's betrayal, but all their, you know, their betraying of Christ or denying him all the more weighty and you know that it's often those closest to Christ who betray him the most and because we are given this extraordinary gift you know nothing is held back from us and uh, just as like an elder would hold nothing back and you know praying for one in his care and when we turn away from Christ you know we're turning away also from the gift, the sacrifice that is made on our behalf. Any other thoughts? All right. The brother again asked, Father, what if I, count, I consult an elder for a command and the elder does not intend to give me a command? But all of what he says is told me in the form of advice or the opposite. What if I do not ask to receive a command, but the elder gives me a command? Is this then considered a command? And must I, in any case, fulfill it? As well, there are, as you know, ecclesiastical canons and the opinions of the fathers written in text. Are we to consider all of these commands? 
And is it necessary to follow them without fail? Boy, this guy is a real piece of work, <laughs> isn't he? Uh, the elder answered, if the elder whom you ask does not intend to give a command, then all that he tells you is not to be taken as a command for you, even if you requested it. If, however, the elder himself decides to give you a command, even if you did not ask for it, all that he advises you should consider, you should consider a command, and it is necessary for you to fulfill it. From among the ecclesiastical canons, we should accept as commands only those which refer to matters of dogma. Likewise, do not indiscriminately apply those patristic counsels which are formulated as directives, but apply them only if you consult spiritual fathers and elders and through their opinions verify these thoughts. For it is possible that you through their opinions verify, I'm sorry, it is possible that you might not always understand correctly the deeper meaning of patristic texts and canons. For this reason, we must consult the elders and respect their advice. Let us give great attention to this. Let us be obedient and let us keep inviolate all that we have heard through the help of God who loves mankind and through the prayers of the saints. Amen. And so, you know, he pushes him in every direction here for clarity that, you know, an elder can give a specific command and, you know, where there is this relationship and that it is to be embraced, but it's limited, you know, only where it really has to do with, you know, matters of dogma, clear, direct teaching of the church, not simply, you know, something that's from his own authority, but really comes to him from the church as a whole. And so he would be holding him binding, holding something binding that's not simply a matter of his own judgment, but really is the, the judgment of the church as a, as a whole. Uh, and going on to about the patristic teachings that, again, you know, not to be embraced indiscriminately. So the things that we are reading here or that we read, say, in the Philokalia, that we wouldn't indiscriminately embrace all of them as something that would be commands or that we are to embrace specifically and in every detail. There would be a kind of lack of wisdom in that, and that could be something that would be damaging as well. And so to seek out the guidance of elders in doing this. And you know, when, when we have this kind of fidelity and this kind of care, the elder, you know, closes with this, then, then God himself, you know, blesses it. You know, there's, there's not always going to be perfection in the level of clarity that we have about things. And I think we can try to respond as much as we can as what's laid out here, you know, to receive what is offered to us as, as advice and counsel with a kind of, of docility to be teachable you know, to realize that we are receiving what has been passed down to us through tradition, and that that has a certain weight, a weight that's rooted in the sanctity of those who have gone before us, and the, the and rooted in their experience over the course of time. And that, so we, we take it up, and when we, we do this, and we try to follow this counsel that's been given in these past pages, then God will bless our path forward. Any final thoughts or comments on any of this? It's important counsel, I think, because we've often talked about, you know, that we do live in this time where we have so much that's available to us, you know, that we have access to the teachings of the church as a whole, but also the writings of the fathers. You know, we have all these things at hand as well as the availability of the sacraments. And so we have so much to help us in the spiritual life. Uh, and yet we want to be discerning and uh, simply having the information uh, isn't enough that we don't walk the path in isolation. And, you know, as individuals, we're part of the body of Christ. And so living our life 
in continuity with the, the lived reality of the faith throughout the centuries should be something that is precious to us, that we aren't simply inventing the path for ourselves or that we imagine that is best for ourselves, but we take hold of you know, the, the collective wisdom of the church and of the saints. Okay. So that, that brings us to 8.30. Any final questions or comments? Okay. So we'll end there for tonight. And uh, when we close, it's always with the Our Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks, thank you, God. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Father Abernathy. You're welcome. Uh, Ren put a little note there for us in the chat that we're, we've switched our email service. Uh, the, the other one hadn't been very re reliable, so we've moved to something called MailChimp. <laughs> so you'll be getting your weekly email uh, about the link through it, and it sh should be very reliable. It's been around for uh, a good bit. Uh, you just wanna check that it doesn't slip into your junk mail. You know, sometimes our filters will do that. So for a little while, at least check to make sure that you're receiving it. Yeah. But that's what we'll be using as we go ahead.